Good evening and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Ash Sarka, subbing in for Moya, who unfortunately is at home recovering after I sabotaged her career by throwing ball bearings on the floor. With me tonight is the effervescent Sam Bright. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And just be careful because you might get the ball bearing treatment as well. Coming up tonight, we've got the latest horrific revelations about Andrew Tate's online network, the former MP who doesn't want you to know that her ancestors were slave owners, and why Emmanuel Macron has got the Daily Mail all upset. Stay tuned for all of that. Let's go to our first story. Rishi Sunak has appointed a new defence secretary. Grant Shapps got the job this morning after the resignation of Ben Wallace. Posting online, Shapps said this about his new job. I'm honoured to be appointed as Defence Secretary by Rishi Sunak. I'd like to pay tribute to the enormous contribution Ben Wallace has made to UK defence and global security over the last four years. As I get to work at Defence HQ, I am looking forward to working with the brave men and women of our armed forces who defend our nation's security and continuing the UK support for Ukraine in their fight against Putin's barbaric invasion. It's Shap's fifth ministerial job in just a year, and reaction to his appointment has been somewhat mixed. Referring to Shaps' skill on the airwaves, an anonymous minister said, quote, The minister for the Today programme is the minister for defence. Former head of the army, Lord Dannett, said this. The big question is whether Grant Shapps is going to be a political appointee to support the Prime Minister in Cabinet, or is he going to understand the needs of defence? He will have to work really hard to understand his portfolio at a Whitehall level and how the armed forces work. With Shapps moving to defence, there's also a new energy secretary. This is Claire Coutinho. Before entering Parliament, she was an advisor to Sunak in the Treasury. Her previous jobs include a stint at investment firm Merrill Lynch and the right-wing think tank Centre for Social Justice. And at just 38 years old, she'll be the youngest cabinet member, having only been an MP since 2019. She'll also be the sixth Secretary of State, tasked with energy since 2019. Sam, Grant Shapps, a.k.a. Michael Green, he just keeps going from strength to strength in the cabinet. What's his secret? Oh, I don't know. His um, record in business, um, <laughs> his ability to stir up conspiracy theories about Just Stop Oil. Seems that Rishi Sunak likes, likes that one. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's what people have been, <laughs> people have been saying. He's basi- basically a loyal mouthpiece of the administration. Um, it's a bit baffling, actually. I don't know if you saw it. There was a, there was a sort of stomach-churning article from The Telegraph in the past few days. I think it was The Telegraph all the times. I uh, forget which. That said that Rishi Sunak's across the detail. He's a details man. Civil servants have to wake up at 6 a.m. Um, for their 9 o'clock meetings with the Prime Minister because they're worried about the questions that he may ask them. And yet, if he's such a details man, if he's so across the ins and outs of government policy, why does he appoint ministers every five minutes who don't know their brief, who are just media, they're just media savvy, they're sort of his lapdogs. It's, you know, it's a bit infuriating, really, um, you know, the, the perception versus the reality. Is this part of a more general trend that we're seeing in politics, that ministers of state don't necessarily have the expertise in their field? And maybe the reason why non-experts get appointed to really powerful positions, it's because they're not going to rival the executive authority of the prime minister and his team at number 10. Definitely. I mean, you can see this with both Shaps and and Coutinho, Um, as you mentioned um Shaps is, you know, loyal servant of Sunak. It's expected that he's not going to challenge the government on defence spending, which Sunak is quite shaky on, despite his rhetoric about, about Ukraine. And then Claire Coutinho literally used to work for Sunak. She used to be his advisor. Um, and although she's a bit better on green green affairs than, you know, some of the cranks in the Conservative Party. Um, she's going to take Sunak's line. And at the minute, that's pretty reactionary. That's, you know, accusing Labour of being the political wing of just stop oil, whatever that means. Um, and it's playing into the hands of the likes of Lee Anderson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and, you know, those sort of voices on, on GB News. So although she may appear better 
yeah, she's just going to follow Sunak's line. And yeah, so that's a long-standing pro- process that probably goes back to, to Blair, to be honest. Let's move on to our next story. Here at Navarra Media, we do our very best to give a voice to the voiceless, to stick up for the least powerful and the most vulnerable members of our society. So spare a thought, if you can, for the plight of Brits who own second homes in France. The Mail carried this story today. Emmanuel Macron has allowed over 3,000 French communes, that's basically the equivalent of our civil parishes, to increase council tax on second homeowners from anywhere between 5 and 60%. One of the big changes is that people won't be charged at all for properties that are their main residence, but people who own more than one home will have to pay more than they did before. The idea is that this policy will shift the burden away from people who, (gasps) gasp, live in the home that they own, onto people who have more properties than they need. So it's meant to be fairer, and it's intended to free up homes in areas where people who don't own any home are struggling to buy. This, of course, has gone down like a cup of cold sick with the British right-wing media. This is what the Mail have to say. British owners of properties in European Union countries have already been hit by post-Brexit restrictions on how long they can stay without a visa. But the latest move by the French government has been described as a double whammy by those affected, with the higher rates called galling by some of the 86,000 British households that own second homes in the country. So they're drawing attention to the 86,000 Brits who own second homes in France, and they brand the policy galling in light of the fact that post-Brexit rules mean that UK citizens can only stay for 90 days out of every 180 in EU countries. The Telegraph covered this story and invited its readers to vote in a poll asking whether they backed the council tax surcharge on second homes. And by a very small margin, they're generally against second homeowners being made to pay more council tax. Now, if something seems a little bit odd about how the Mail and the Telegraph are framing this story, you'd be right. First of all, the council tax surcharge doesn't only apply to Brits. It's for anyone who owns a second home in France, including French citizens. And the second thing is that it's a bit rich for these two papers to complain about Brits no longer enjoying visa-free travel in EU countries. The Telegraph and the Daily Mail were both overwhelmingly supportive of Brexit. So you can't really bang the drum for ending freedom of movement and then complain when you no longer have freedom of movement. But the reason why I want to talk about this story is that we also have a second homes problem here at home in the UK. This quote is from the government's English Housing Survey 2021-2022. In 2021-22, there were 809,000 second homes owned by households in England, an increase of 13%, or just under 100,000 homes, on 2010-2011. However, the percentage of households with a second home was unchanged during this period at 3%. What that means is that we're seeing growing housing inequality. Though the proportion of people who own second homes hasn't changed, the number of second homes has actually gone up. That means that more people are being locked out of owning a home at all because of others owning more than their fair share of the housing stock. And as this graph shows, these aren't retirement homes or working homes away from homes. Most second homes are bought for holiday or investment purposes. That drives up housing costs and depletes the housing stock for local residents. Second home ownership is also an engine of regional inequality. So, as you can see, second home owners are most likely to be found in London and the southeast. That's an immense concentration of property wealth down south. So, Sam, this has got me thinking. Is it time for a French-style second homes tax here in the UK? Yes. Sign me up. (laughs) Where's the petition? (laughs) I think this is also the first time that we've probably been on the same page on regional inequality. So a momentous moment um, that we should celebrate. But um, yeah, I think we obviously need to do more fundamental things to tackle um, the entrenchment of wealth in certain areas of the country, and particularly property wealth. Um, You know, a land value tax, for example, would would be great at doing that. Um, taxing the fact that property in in certain areas of the country has inflated exponentially in recent years and the people who've merely not sold those properties um, have benefited from that unearned 
um, accumulation of their assets, um, that should be ripe for for taxing. Um, and the fact is that London has a m- massive second home um, uh, and more generally you know, uh, under-occupied um, property problem. Um, I've seen stats suggesting that 25,000 London homes were um, unoccupied in 2020, which is double the amount of people who sleep rough on London streets every year. So if we clamp down on that, we could, you know, I think meaningfully um, head towards solving multiple problems. You know, the problems with people getting on the um, the housing ladder, the problems with people renting and the cost of renting being too high, but also homelessness in the capital. I think it's not just a, a southeast problem either. Um, one thing that has got some attention recently, but still not enough attention, is that housing crisis in the lights of the southwest um where you've got landlords sitting on multiple properties and renting them out on airbnb for whole stretches of the year so they'll put it on the rental market for six months and a family can move in for that limited period of time but then they'll they'll essentially take it off the market and put it on airbnb which restricts the housing supply um, and creates instability for, for people in that part of the country where wages are pretty low. Um, so yeah, let's, let's do it right now. Looking at the way in which these stories have been framed, um, this story about the French second homes tax was covered in The Telegraph, The Times, and The Daily Mail, and all of it was really negative. It was, oh, Emmanuel Macron is adding to the woes of second homeowners. Is that a sign that they've got a sense of who their readers are? Their readers aren't the kind of people who are languishing in the private rental sector. Their readers are well-off, older, and are more likely to have a bougie little chalet or villa somewhere nice in France. Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that's the one thing that these newspapers are. They're sort sort of bully pulpits for their readerships. They're class warriors for the people who buy their newspapers, what they, what they are as well, and I think we'll touch on this a bit later, is that they very much articulate the interests of their owners. Um, and, you know, in the case of the Telegraph, although it's been sold, um, the Barclay brothers live, um, I believe, in the Channel Islands. Um, and Lord Rothermere, who um, owns the Daily Mail, um, has, has had non-dom status in France for a considerable period of time. So I think it's not beyond the realms of possibilities to suggest that their their, um, their owners might have had uh, a word or two to say about this as well. Before we move on, we've got a quick break for you. We're going to show you a video paying homage to our owner and Lord uh, Viscount Rothermere, but please stay tuned because when we come back, we'll be discussing Andrew Tate, Nadim Zahawi, and the former MP who has blundered into the Barbara Streisand effect. Our planet is wounded. As extreme weather events rage across the globe, the mainstream media either acts as if no one is to blame or flat out denies it's happening. We don't want to live less good lives because of some lunatic climate nonsense hysteria from an eco-cult telling us the world's on fire. But here at Navarra Media, we expose climate villains. According to Julie Hartley-Brill, we should just keep calm and carry on. Sunak doesn't want to talk about the environment. We analyse the climate movement and how it's changing and explore what we can do to adapt to climate breakdown. We have to act now. In the face of obscene wealth and influence, we need people-powered media. If you can, join our regular supporters and donate one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com support. We can't do this without you. So once again, that's navaramedia.com slash support. The link is in the description below. And don't worry, we're not actually owned by Lord Rothermere. That was just my idea of a sick joke. Um, Just a quick content warning. We'll be discussing details of abuse and sexual exploitation in this next portion of the show. Earlier in August, Andrew Tate was released from house arrest ahead of his trial for rape and sex trafficking charges. Tate and his brother Tristan deny all wrongdoing, but a BBC investigation has uncovered evidence that dozens of women were groomed online sex work by members of his so-called War Room Telegram group. If, by some miracle, you don't know who Andrew Tate is, this is the basic biography. 
He's a kickboxer turned influencer who's claimed at various times to be a millionaire, a billionaire, and even the world's first trillionaire. He runs an online course aimed at young men, promising to teach them the skills of wealth creation and self-improvement. But Andrew Tate's worldview is a lot more than preaching the gospel of hard work and self-belief. At its core, the Andrew Tate philosophy is about the domination and exploitation of women. Before his arrest for sex trafficking and rape, Tate boasted of having 75 women performing online sex work and passing on their earnings to him. His strategy for recruitment follows the blueprint of the so-called lover boy method of grooming. In a now deleted page from his website, Tate boasted that my job was to meet a girl, go on a few dates, sleep with her, test if she's quality, get her to fall in love with me to where she'd do anything I say, and then get her on webcam so we could become rich together. Like I said, Andrew Tate and his brother Tristan Tate deny all allegations of wrongdoing. However, members of Andrew Tate's War Room group, which costs $8,000 a year to join, are seemingly very relaxed about participating in illegal activity. They run a course that purports to teach men how to groom women into sex work. They call it their PhD program, which stands for Pimpin Hose Degree. This is from the BBC's investigation. One post sent by a leading member who uses the alias Joe Lampton described how he reacted to a complaint from a woman who worked for him. I took her keyboard and hit her in the head with it, the message read. She went into the room and worked seven hours without any break. The BBC's investigation found that there's one war room member that seems to be the main driving force and leader of the group's activities. He goes by the alias Iggy Semmelweis, and many of his contributions focus on how to employ manipulative, coercive, and outright abusive strategies to get women to do what war room members want them to do. Here's one of his messages. We deliberately reduce attention and note if she chases. Then we set up a coffee date and execute a move to find out if she's willing to pay for our coffee and serve us. After that, it becomes a series of gradual steps to remove her entire support structure from her life. Then we punish her for transgression, real or imagined, by having her get our name tattooed on her, leaving her family's home, apartment, town, country, webcamming, stripping, walking the track for us, getting us girls, escalate, escalate, escalate. Just to be 100% clear, what's being described here is a form of abuse known as coercive control. It's a pattern of behavior that includes reality manipulation, humiliation, and deprivation of independence to keep someone under the control of their abuser. And in the UK, that's a criminal offense. The view of the ideal woman presented by Iggy Semmelweis is one where she's infantilized and totally lacking in any agency of her own. Here's another one of his messages. She doesn't even have a wallet. Why do I need one, daddy? I can't count it anyways. Isolating her from her family, friends, past is the kindest thing you can do for her if you are taking responsibility for having sole authority over her. When you look at this stuff, it's hard to tell which messages are being posted by men who are genuinely exploiting and abusing women and which are just kind of LARPing. By that, I mean using the internet and the anonymity that it affords to construct a fantasy world in which you're much more powerful, desirable, and wealthy than you actually are in real life. But the BBC investigation did identify women who were targeted by war room members during this period of time and interviewed two women who said they were exploited by people who were manipulated into sex work by war room members. This is from the news piece on the BBC website. He used sex a lot to manipulate me, says Maria, not her, real, not her real name, from Buenos Aires, Argentina. The women also say they were subjected to violence, isolated from friends, and forced to perform menial tasks to demonstrate their subservience. The report continues. Amanda, also a pseudonym, who lives on the west coast of the US, says she gave up to 80% of what she earned at any one time, a total of $95,000, to two war room members. Amanda told the BBC she was slapped across the face by a general, that's what one of the leaders of the war room is called, who exploited her and showed us photographs of bruising. She said he had control of everything. The BBC's investigation identifies 45 potential victims between March 2019 and April 2020, but they say the total number is likely to be higher. Sam, how dangerous is it? 
for intimate partner violence and sexual exploitation to be the subject of collective fantasy and being linked to social status in the way that it is by members of Andrew Tate's group. It shows that you can create, you know, pockets of the internet, I think, where these things go uninvestigated, at least until, you know, the BBC shows up and there's a court case against Andrew Tate um you know that can lead it's 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 not just trivial in the way that lots of people think of the internet you know in terms of trolling and memes and and even the more light-hearted stuff that takes place but it's something that can cause serious personal lasting real world damage to people um and like you say the the whole social it's kind of the social experiment around it um, gives people a cloak of anonymity and it gives them that sense of power to conduct a sort of sick game with people um, that targets vulnerable people and puts them in you know, truly awful positions. So, you know, I think full credit to the BBC for doing this investigation. It's really good journalism and the sort of stuff that the BBC should be doing. And also massive credit to the women for coming forward because as we've seen um tate and his acolytes uh they're, they're quite willing to threaten the people who are coming forward and, and calling out this sort of thing so um yeah full credit to them i mean i want to talk a little bit about the worldview which is being indoctrinated or encouraged into these young men because the way that they're being told to see women is that how we want to be treated is to be dominated, is to be controlled, is to be exploited, that that's something that's coming from us and our desires. And, and one of the things that has struck me from interacting with Andrew Tate's fans online, which is never a pleasant experience, is that they always accuse you of, of criticizing this because you, you secretly want it you secretly want to be treated this way you know oh you'd, you'd have sex with either one of them if you could and the impression I'm always left with is how did you get to such a nihilistic view of one half of the human species I mean what what is it that's being appealed to here is it just that these are young guys who don't know how to interact with women and so will believe anything that they're told by a guy who they see as higher status? Is this based on resentment? Is it fear? Like, what, what is it that's being appealed to here? I suspect that it has something to do with the isolation of these communities um, and the fact it's essentially guys in a high testosterone environment or whatever, you know, they're trying to amp each other up. It's like, you know, guys talking to guys about something that they don't really know about, they're not willing to question. And it becomes that sort of, you know, um, macho competition between them that bears little reality to the outside world. It's, it's simply trying to thump one's chest as, as loudly as possible and to appeal to the other men in the group. Um, I think fundamentally, um, you know, it, it doesn't have um, a great deal to do with their... Um, perceptions of of women at least to start off with because what they're trying to do is to you know climb that social hierarchy which exists purely in terms of male-to-male relationships um and that's you know that's created by this sort of isolated community where no one's actually educating them about um about you know how to behave as a human being is there anything that anyone can do to sort of interrupt this process of indoctrination because one of the things that strikes me is that if I was to come across someone who's like younger than me like a teenager who's really into Andrew Tate I feel there's almost nothing I could say without sounding older than Methuselah like someone who just like isn't at all au fait with the kind of cultural space that they're inhabiting um so is there anything that adults in positions of responsibility can actually do I think it's really tricky and I've actually been speaking to people more and more about it recently, you know, um, young parents whose, um, you know, teenage boys uh, are having Andrew Tate content pumped uh, into their feeds on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, the dilemma is, 
do you cut off that supply of content? Do you like ban social media? Um, because that's what it takes. You can't ban take content from their feed because that's something that the platforms have to do. The, the parent has no jurisdiction over that. Um, and then the other approach I think is maybe not to, you know, is to educate them about Andrew Tate's views and, you know, why they're so poisonous, et cetera. And about, you know, not getting lured down these rabbit holes, but also just give, give your kids the sort of moral framework to understand themselves when they come into contact with these things, um, that it's wrong. Um, and obviously, you know, try to socialize them in, in the best way and, and set the best example. And, you know, it sounds quite, I don't know, nebulous and a bit pious, but those are honestly the only sharp tools that parents have, I think, to, to tackle this thing. Because like you say, if you try to tackle it head on, there is a real risk that, um, especially younger people, might just push back and, and say, you're trying to tell me what to do. You're an authority figure and these are my mates. Um, and um, they become allies with this sort of hyper-masculine, with other people um, who are part of the hyper-masculine movement um, rather than listen to the parents. That's a really important point. And maybe the one thing that I'd add is that I hear so much from women talking about their perspective on heterosexual relationships. And you don't really hear that often from heterosexual men talking about their perspective in relationships, unless it's within the context of this really toxic, really aggressive, really misogynist manosphere. And I think that there's a whole... Um, I don't know, a whole world which is which is missing. Um, and that's men talking about having heterosexual relationships on the basis of equality and mutual respect rather than it being about one side having to vie for domination. Um, I find this stuff very depressing. Let's move on to our next story. Tory MP Nadim Zahawi has a lot of money, but he could soon gain the power to match it because he's potentially in line to become chair of The Telegraph, the political opinion setters for middle-class and indeed upper-class Tories. The Telegraph is currently owned by the Barclay family, but its Bermuda-registered holding company has been in receivership since June. That's after it emerged that the Barclays, through a complicated structure of debt and refinancing, were judged by Lloyd's banking group to be unable to, to repay £1 billion worth of loans taken out before the 2008 financial crisis. The Daily and the Sunday Telegraph and the Spectator magazine were all set to be put up for sale to, re to repay the Barclays' debts. But now it seems the Barclay family are fighting back. Zahawi is reportedly acting as a middleman for the Barclays, who have apparently been trying to raise the funds for investors in the United Arab Emirates in order to regain control of the media group. The Times write this. The involvement of Zahawi, former chairman of the Conservative Party, may prove controversial. One source has said that Zahawi, a serving MP, will be made chairman of the newspaper group in the event that the Barclay family's bid was successful. It has also been claimed that he would receive a fee for having helped secure the Middle Eastern financing. A senior role at The Telegraph would give Zahawi influence over the debate about the future of the Conservative Party, which will intensify as an election nears, an unwelcome prospect for Rishi Sunak, who sacked him as party chairman this year. Um, Sam, this would be pretty big if a serving and pretty senior Tory MP became chair of a media group like this. Um, what would this mean for Nadim Zahawi in terms of power and influence? I think extraordinary influence. I can't really think of a precedent like this before. You know, you've got Boris Johnson bumbling away on the peripheries of the Daily Mail and, you know, various MPs being presenters at GB News, for example. But like you say, a recent chancellor, very wealthy member of parliament to be the chairman of a newspaper group, an influential newspaper group that really sets the tempo of the political agenda or one of the newspapers that sets the political agenda of the likes of the BBC, for example, and the big broadcasters. Um, he, he would act as, you'd think, a, a conduit really from between the ownership and the editorial board um, which is a really extraordinary position to be in. Um, but you'd have to say a, a sort of uh, an unadulterated um, epitomization of what has happened to our media uh, over the past few years, which is the blurring of those boundaries between 
politics and and journalism and um, many right-wing newspapers becoming mouthpieces for certain uh, reactionary campaigns and this would just this would just formalize the process really but yeah uncharted territory I mean, I just want to ask you as well about the Middle Eastern investment that Zahawi is trying to secure from investors based in the United Arab Emirates. We've seen other Gulf states buy up media assets, whether that's the Saudis uh, taking out stakes in Vice Media or uh, from Evgeny Lebedev's uh, Independent and the Evening Standard. Do you think that this is the UAE trying to kind of catch up with the Saudis in that regard? Yeah, definitely. You know, football clubs first and then cheaper assets second. Although many people say that the Telegraph's um, overpriced. Um, so, yeah, they're putting their money where their mouth is. But, I, 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 yeah, I certainly think that it is. And, yeah, I'd encourage everyone to go and read um, Simon Charles's article in Navarra about um, Vice and its Saudi ownership and how that has led to certain censorship of um the articles that it can and can't publish um and i think it's it's very directly um this sort of purchasing of the media agenda by foreign powers um in order to influence the direction of british politics and that has quite insidious effects you know these aren't benign states um you look at saudi arabia and the war that it has waged in Yemen in recent years. Um, you look at the way in which it pursues its policies domestically to build sort of a technological nirvana while um, repressing the rights of minorities. Um, you know, and, and these are essentially authoritarian states that have stakes in our media outlets and therefore have great influence over the policies of the incumbent government. Um, and I think in terms of you know foreign policy, um, while the Tory party likes to talk a lot about China and the insidious effects of, of that regime, um, I think it should be, be looking over to the likes of the UAE and Saudi Arabia as well. But it's probably too caught up in the cash, to be honest. The offer that the Barclays and their co-investors are putting forward to settle their roughly £1 billion worth of debts owed to Lloyds is £600 million a hefty discount if it goes through. Now, the Barclays financial arrangements are just as complicated as you'd expect them to be for a family that once owned the Ritz Hotel. There are shell companies within shell companies registered in exotic locations like Bermuda, the British Virgin Islands, and less exotically, Jersey. In need of a middleman with expertise in creative financial strategies, they really couldn't have done better than Zahawi. Back in January, he was sacked as Conservative Party chair for breaching the ministerial code. That was after it emerged that he'd failed to disclose an HMRC investigation into his financial dealings when Boris Johnson appointed him literal Chancellor of the Exchequer last summer. It also emerged that he'd failed to disclose several million pounds worth of financial settlements he'd made with HMRC when Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak each appointed him to separate ministerial positions. Also, last year, before these details became public, Zahawi had even tried to become prime minister following Boris Johnson's resignation. That led to this interview with Sky's K. Burley. We need to ask you about your um, investigation into your own uh, tax affairs. Um, what was your reaction when you saw reports that your own tax affairs were being investigated by your own department? So I was you know, clearly being smeared. I was being told that, that the serious fraud office, that the National Crime Agency, the HMRC are looking uh, into me. I've, you know, I'm not aware uh, of this. I will, I've always declared my taxes. I've paid my taxes in the UK. Uh, I will you know, answer any questions HMRC has uh, 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 of me, but I will go further, Kay. I'm going to make a commitment today that if I am prime minister, I think the right thing to do is to publish my accounts annually. That's the right thing to do, uh, because I think we need to take this issue in many ways off, off, the, off the table. Um, I will publish my accounts annually. That's the right thing Backdated. Uh, to do. I will look at you know, what, what the options are in terms of backdating or just publishing annually. I think it's right to do it. What about your tax returns? I will, that's, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. My tax return, I'll publish annually. Okay. Over the last decade, 
well, I, if I'm prime minister, I will, I will, I will publish them um, going forward. I don't think being retrospective is right. You know, I was in business before I came out of that. Of course, I'm now in politics. I was being smeared. This was all just a pack of lies. He wasn't being smeared. He wasn't being subject to unfair intrusion into his financial affairs. He had, in fact, been in trouble over a £3.7 million tax bill. It was also, you might have noticed, a bit of fancy footwork when asked if he'd publish tax records retrospectively, saying unconvincingly, well, you know, I was in business and then I was in politics. Um, you know, things that you do in the past have an impact on you as a politician. And we're not talking about like, oh, did you want to smoke weed at a party? We're talking about, did you intentionally or mistakenly dodge tax? Pretty big deal. Um, Sam, how has a man with so many murky financial arrangements ended up occupying such a powerful position in public life? Yeah, well, he's not the only one. Um, <laughs> politics, sadly, is a game for the wealthy um, now. And, you know, offshore arrangements and, you know, clever footwork, as you say, um, in terms of their annual accounts that won't be backdated. Um, that's what they're told to do. That's what these wealthy people are advised by the smart accountants um, is to play these games. Um, and it's a, it's a depressing state of politics, to be honest, that um, I, think it's, I think it's, you know, it's very well known in the Westminster village. Um, that you have to be extraordinarily wealthy now to gain access to Parliament. You know, you have to give up your career effectively to campaign for a selection contest. You've often got to spend thousands of pounds of your own money um, to advertise to local members and then to you know, um, resource yourself in terms of when you've when you've won the the party selection process, um, and yet nothing has really been done about it to enable you know ordinary people, people with uh, meaningful practical experience in you know the likes of energy, healthcare, teaching, to enter high politics, and so you've got a situation in which. Nadim Zahawi with a property empire um, who's been investigated by HMRC can become Chancellor of the Exchequer. And Rishi Sunak, you know, of non-DOM status fame, can become Chancellor and then Prime Minister. Um, and Boris Johnson, whose you know, ultimate ambition is to make as much money as possible in as short a period of time, you know, he can become Prime Minister and then, you know... Uh, a columnist at the at the Daily Mail. I think this is, just shows the institutional wealth that is now caught up in in British politics, um, and certainly, you know, um, particularly in the Conservative Party. I mean, would you go further and suggest that it represents a form of oligarchical capture or corporate capture of democratic institutions? Because you've got these twin things going on. One is that you've got the effective exclusion of people from working class backgrounds, or at least people um, who don't have a means to sustain themselves while they're doing that full, full-time campaigning job for selection. And then you've got the other bit, which is you've got an awful amount of lobbying, you've got an awful amount of second jobs, and you've got this very chummy relationship between people who work at the very top of media, people who work at the very top of, uh, you know, policy making people who work at the very top of polling then entering politics and leaving it again kind of with wild abandon um you know would you say that it there is this kind of structural issue of corruption operating in plain sight absolutely i mean it's a good way of putting it um i think part of the problem that people don't really focus on is the bit that happens after people leave cabinet um, which then shapes what happens when they're in the job. Um, in the you know successive prime ministers, you know Blair, um, Theresa May, um, David Cameron, Boris Johnson, and Liz Truss have made millions, literally millions and millions of pounds working for banks and um, doing speeches, you know, and um, consulting for foreign shady powers. Um, and as a result, the cabinet ministers who are sitting there in office currently, 
they're jeopardizing their future income sources by challenging corporate power, by railing against the human rights abuses of suspicious regimes. And I think this creates a form of you know, political censorship um, and also, like you say, corporate and financial control over our political system because they can sort of dangle the carrots of the millions to come as long as the minister say, stays silent while they're in office. Um, and that's, a, you know, that's something that needs to be clamped down on like, immediately because that revolving door corrupts our, our democratic process and means that politics is only orientated towards um, business and corporate power and not towards the interests of the, the many and the planet and you know, the sustainability of our, of our natural resources. I mean, look, I've always said this, there is no after-dinner speech which is worth hundreds of thousands, millions of pounds, right? No one is that fucking funny. No one is that smart. Absolutely nobody. Let's move on to our next story. A lot of British families enjoying the benefit of generational inherited wealth have ancestral links to the slave trade. That's just a fact, but it might be one that they would rather not have you know. Just last week, a UN judge estimated the UK could owe at least £18 trillion in reparations for slavery. And this is Antoinette Sandberg. She's a former Tory MP who has been named by a Cambridge University historian as a descendant of a slave-owning merchant. And now, in response, Antoinette Sandbach has allegedly threatened legal action against Cambridge University. The historian involved is this man, Malik Al-Nasir, a third-year PhD student at St. Catherine's College, Cambridge. He spent two decades researching his family's history of enslavement and the wealth that was built from that. As part of that research, he learned that his ancestors had been enslaved in plantations in the former colony of British Guyana during the 18th and 19th centuries. In 2021, he reported some of those findings in a TEDx talk. Samuel Sandbach was Lord Mayor of Liverpool, 1830 to 1831. He was also a founding shareholder and later deputy director and also chief uh, executive stroke chairman of a bank that was formed in 1831 called the Bank of Liverpool. Now, many members of his family were also directors of the Bank of Liverpool and or chairman and deputy chairman, and many of them were slaveholders. So this family made its entire fortune on the slave trade. And as well as being Lord Mayor of Liverpool, and as well as being uh, chairman of the Bank of Liverpool, he was also a high sheriff in Denbyshire, where he built a fantastic home called Hafadunas Estate in Denbyshire. And one of his descendants, Antoinette Sandbach, still lives on that land to this very day. She farms and lives in one of the cottages there. And up until recently, she was a sitting member of parliament. Now, Ted X later attached a correction to that talk by Al Nasir, stating that at the time of the talk, Sandbach no longer lived in the foreman's cottage on the Hafodunus estate. I butchered that pronunciation. I'm so sorry to the entire nation of Wales. Um, but Sandbach was apparently unhappy about more than just a mistaken reference to where she lived. The Guardian reports this. Al-Nasir claims he has been pressured to remove a reference in his work to Antoinette Sandbach, the former MP for Edisbury in Cheshire, who is now a descend who is a descendant of Samuel Sandbach and beneficiary of his estate. Sandbach has said she supports and appreciates the importance of Al-Nasir's work, but raised concerns that she was being singled out in an online TED talk given by him. The article goes into some more detail here. Sandbach first messaged Al-Nasir on Twitter about his research and the two had a cordial exchange. Sandbach then emailed Al-Nasir's academic supervisor and asked that the reference of her be removed from his TED talk, claiming there were inaccuracies and that she was being unfairly singled out for being an MP. Al-Nasir said he responded to the allegations of factual inaccuracies directly to a supervisor who was satisfied they were unfounded. Sandbach then made a complaint to the University of Cambridge, which had embedded the TED Talk video on its website on the grounds that it breached her right to privacy. All right, right to privacy. We're going to get back to that in just a little bit. According to The Guardian, Sandbach then took further steps. 
after an investigation by the university's Information Compliance Office, ICO, Sandback's request to have her name removed was rejected on the grounds of academic freedom. Sandback informed Al-Nasir she was in the process of instructing solicitors. She added that she was also thinking of making a formal complaint to the ICO. Malik Al-Nasir has said this, as a black person who has, as a result of the legacy of enslavement and colonialism, been detached from his ancestral African roots, it's important to have the freedom to research my own history. That history will, by default, intersect with the history of other people. What my research uncovered is a matter of historical record and genealogical fact. I should have, I should have the academic freedom to report what I find. Sandback didn't provide comment, but following the publication of the story in The Guardian, Sandback said this on, twi- said this on Twitter. And look, yes, I know there's quite a few tweets here that I'm going to read out, but bear with me because the payoff is great. This was the first tweet. Mr. Al-Nasir is aware that I welcomed his research and I am appalled by the actions of my distant ancestors. I have spent my life as a legal aid criminal barrister and MP trying to fight for people's right, trying to fight for people's right, I imagine that's rights, and to help people in need. I would never seek to prevent free speech. There is, of course, ongoing discussion about the legacy of slavery and how that should be addressed. I'm committed to understanding fully the detailed history of my family, and I'm committed to looking into it further. I'm at the start of my learning journey. Although I have been told repeatedly to go back to where I come from, i.e. Europe, as I am half Dutch, I have not been the subject of racism, and the closest prism through which I can relate is that of women's oppression. Many of the racist tropes of the past were also used to suppress women's rights. E.g. Alexander Crummel was the first graduate of African descent from Cambridge University in the 1840s. Women were not officially allowed to graduate until 1948. So there's a lot in there. We start out with a commitment to a learning journey and Sandback lending her support, at least in principle, to the sanctity of academic freedom. But then we get a real sharp turn. First, there's a non sequitur about being told to go back to where she comes from, i.e. Holland. And then we get this bizarre little nugget about women not being able to graduate from Cambridge until 1948. It's hard to tell exactly what Sandback means to say here, but my personal interpretation of it was that she's kind of saying black people in some respects supposedly got a better deal, oppression-wise, than women. There are, of course, black women, but she doesn't get into that. Um, Obviously, women were and are oppressed in various ways, but that's not what we're talking about when discussing enduring legacies of slavery. So why is Antoinette Sandback so bothered about this particular piece of research? I think you could be a bit sympathetic towards someone being flummoxed to learn that their ancestors were slavers. Your average Joe blogs on the street might be forgiven for thinking, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with this information? But it looks like Antoinette Sandback was in a rather different position. Her connection to the slave owner Samuel Sandback was already in the public domain. In 2013, she was the subject of a profile in a magazine called Cheshire Life. It reports this. Her family has farmed in the Ly Valley, which runs through Conwy County, for six generations. And today her home is a slate-fronted house once occupied by the estate's foreman and which dates back to 1840. The family can trace their history back through several greats to a Lord Mayor of Liverpool, who invested money made in sugar trading into land in North Wales, building a road along the valley, along with the village school. Hmm, money made in sugar trading. That sounds like an intriguing euphemism. So look, basically what we're talking about is a former MP whose family's estates were at least in part financed by enslaved labour. And while not all of that wealth will have remained intact down the generations, some of it clearly did at the time she was an MP. So that, in my opinion, puts us in a very different territory from some randomer being held up to public scrutiny because one of their ancestors was a wrong'un. What we're talking about here is the way land, power, 
wealth and the legacies of slavery are all intimately bound up in the composition of Britain's ruling class. You can perhaps understand why she didn't want this to be the subject of a TED talk. Um, Sam, I'm interested in what you make of this right to be forgotten argument. Does that apply to someone who was an MP as recently as 2019 when it comes to being the subject of academic research? I'm no lawyer, but I'd say that you should probably listen to the Information Commissioner's Office on matters of data privacy and GDPR because they are, you know, the experts and they've ruled on this case, as, as you stated previously, as the Guardian article states, um, that they ruled that, um, you know, you know, they, I, and this is the thing, the ICO, you know, I've gone to the ICO trying to get information off the government. They are meticulous about the evidence being presented by both sides about the arguments in favour of public interest versus uh, the interests um, in favour of non-declaration. And they often decide in favour of, of non-declaration of this sort of information because via GDPR, we do have quite strict um, privacy laws in this country now. Um, and they said that it was, you know, within, um, you know, academic rights, academic freedom mm -hmm. um, to publish this information. And the thing is that I, I, I come down to this, that um, Sambach may be getting legal advice, but what she really needs is a PR advisor because this has blown up spectacularly. You know, she, I'm not sure how many people saw this TED Talk, but I, I will bet that it's a lot fewer than have seen the Guardian article reporting on her, um, you know, um, pushing this, um, academic into altering his research um, and frankly she probably should have kept her mouth shut about it. See it's the classic Barbara Streisand effect when you tell someone don't think of Barbara Streisand what are you thinking about? It's Barbara Streisand. Um, looking over at your comments from the UK Ministry of Black Culture which political party is actually serious about ending or transforming UK overseas tax havens? And could they be reimagined to feed into reparations? Um, there was a really bizarre case under David Cameron's administration where he was sort of saying, yeah, sorry for slavery, to make up for it, we're going to help you build a prison uh, in the island of Jamaica, which isn't exactly the kind of reparations people had in mind. Um, thank you, Sam, so much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me. Um, your ankles are safe, don't worry. Uh, and thanks everyone for watching this evening. The show will be back tomorrow from 6pm. Moya will be back when she feels better. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.